Turn in your Bibles and your copy of God's Word to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, please come and let me know that before you leave tonight, because I have Bibles. I will give you one. I will order you one. I will do whatever it takes to get a copy of God's Word in your hand, because you need it. This is not me saying you have to show me your Bible as proof to leave tonight. I trust you. Just letting you know if you don't have one and you need one, I can help you. So, tonight we are going to finish up the book of Malachi. We're going to finish up the book of Malachi. So, I've been here now about six and a half months, and I've preached through two whole books of the Bible. All right? And you guys have listened through two whole books of the Bible. Mostly. Amelia has paid attention to very little. Um, But I'm thankful for the chance to preach. I'm thankful for all of you being here, and I hope and pray that this time has been an encouragement to you, has been edifying to you, uh, as it has been to me. I'm looking forward to uh, next week starting in the book of Colossians, and we're going to talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it's kind of interesting that I, I prayed... I've prayed, I prayed a while ago about what to preach next, and I had a couple different ideas, and I kind of settled on Colossians. And Colossians is all about making Jesus Christ shown to be supreme. And the, the message tonight has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the context of Malachi, he's talking specifically about the first coming of the Lord. But as we're going to look at tonight, this passage is applicable both to the first and the second coming of Jesus in different ways. And so we're going to look at those together. So let's look together. Malachi chapter three, we're going to start in verse 13 and we're going to go all the way through to the end of the book, chapter four, verse six. So this is what it says. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, our walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
Intense, right? Yeah. We'll get there. So, as I told you when we started this, the book of Malachi is structured around what uh, scholars call disputations. Six disputations. Six things that Israel says God has done wrongly toward them. But God responds to them. So it's six issues that God has with Israel. And Israel says, we haven't really done that. And it's really your fault. That's the way that the book is structured. So this one, the final one of the book, in verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So Israel has spoken words against God. And God says that their words have been hard against me. Now, to us, we read that. And in English, that kind of sounds like, Your words have hurt my feelings. They've been hard for me to hear. That's not what God is saying. God is saying that Israel has spoken harshly, fiercely against God in what they've been saying. And so Israel responds, as they usually do, by saying, how have we done that? How have we spoken against you? In verse 14, we see the underlying problem that Israel has, and it's true of every single thing that's happened in the course of this book. Everything that God has called them out on, we see bundled up in this one statement. Verse 14, Malachi chapter 3 says, You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Israel is saying, why should we follow God? We don't get anything out of it. Why should we follow God? What profit is it to us? to follow God's law. What do we get out of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So remember all the way back in the first week of our Malachi series, I talked to you about how Israel, and I've talked about this repeatedly, how Israel is looking at the circumstances around them. They're being attacked by their neighbors. They're being being, uh, just oppressed by the people around them. And so how, how, how are they responding? They're responding by saying, well, serving God isn't getting us anything, so why should we care? This is vain. It is vain to serve God. So brothers and sisters, the question we have to ask ourselves tonight is, is this our attitude toward God? And on the surface, all of us would say, no, never. I would never, ever only serve God because of what I get out of it. That's the the theology we speak with our mouths. But what about the theology that resides in our hearts? What about the practical theology that we live out on a day-to-day basis? Have you ever thought, well, why why would I give as much this month? My my mom is sick. My life is hard. why, why Why would I devote myself to these things? Because my life is really tough. We often have this practical expectation of God as some sort of heavenly ATM machine that only exists to give us what we desire. And that's the perspective that Israel had. They thought, well, if we serve God, he will protect us and our life will be easy. If we serve God, we will have monetary wealth. Our crops will be plentiful. But that's not what's happening. Israel is destitute. They're in the midst of famine. They're being oppressed by their neighbors. So they're saying serving God has got us no gain. Why bother? Why bother? 
And the secondary issue that's kind of wrapped up within it is that it seems like the evildoers are prospering. Verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. So not only are they prospering, but literally this is a way of saying that they are flaunting God's law and they face no consequences. So here's Israel. In their mind, they think, well, we're serving God. We're following the law. Now, as we've seen throughout the course of the book of Malachi, that's not true, right? They're offering polluted sacrifices. They're, they're robbing God of their tithes. The priests are not teaching the law. They're faithless to each other. They are not following God's law. They are following the external appearances of God's law. And they think, well, I've done enough. I should be blessed. And it's not happening. But their oppressors around them are, in their view, being blessed. And so to them, like, like we talked about last week, they're saying, well, the evildoers are prospering. The wicked are prospering. While God's good, righteous people, God's good, righteous people are suffering. It is vain to serve God. It is in vain to serve God. What does it profit us to follow his statutes, to walk as in mourning before the Lord? Why bother? Why bother? I'm going to pause here because I want to address this because the text doesn't really address this. The text, very interestingly, Israel, finally, it clicks for them and they, they, they start to talk to one another. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to move to that in a minute. But I want to address this issue right up front. Why do we serve God? Why do we follow after Christ? It is not because of what Christ gives us. And listen, brothers and sisters, that includes heaven. That includes heaven. If your motivation for following after Jesus is simply so that you get to go to heaven... Your attitude is exactly like the Israelites, and that's wrong. We serve Christ. We follow Christ because Christ is God. That is the reason. If Jesus Christ had showed up on earth and walked around and said, I'm God, worship me, you're still going to all go to hell because you're sinners, but still worship me it would still be good and right for us to worship Jesus Christ, even though we have nothing to gain because he is the king of the entire universe. And when he comes again, the Bible is very clear when it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Non-believers are going to worship Jesus. It's going to give them no profit. They will get no gain, but they will worship the Lord. We worship Jesus because he is Jesus, not because he is our ticket to heaven, not because he gives us nice things, not because we praise God from whom all blessings flow, because here's the truth. If he never gives us anything other than himself, he is still good. The book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel is facing off and Daniel and his friends are facing off against a king who is, who is bent on being worshipped as a god. 
And his three friends are told, you will worship me. You will bow down to the golden image of myself that I have set up. And if you don't, I will throw you into the furnace and you will die. And they don't. And they're brought before the king. And the king says, where's your God now? You're going to die. And they tell him, they say, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, we will not bow down and worship you. We will not bow down to the image. Our God, we are confident, is able to rescue us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will never worship another God. Did you catch that? They're saying, I'm confident that my God has the power to rescue me from this danger. And he does. But that doesn't mean that he will. And they understood that. And they said, even if he doesn't, he is still God and he is still good. And it makes the king mad. Makes him so mad that he has the furnace turned up so hot that literally the guys who turn up the heat are incinerated. They're not even in it and they're burned up by it because it is turned up so hot. And so he throws them in. And then they look inside and there they are, those three guys hanging out in the furnace. But there's a fourth. There's another one there. And it says that he is shining like the sun. Now think about how shiny he must have been to be visibly shining inside of a flaming furnace. This is a whole different level of radiance. This is what biblical scholars call a Christophany or an appearance of Jesus Christ before the incarnation of Jesus Christ takes place in the New Testament. It's Jesus in the furnace with them. And so they come out of the furnace and not only are they not dead, not only are they not burned, not only, not only are their clothes not burned, they don't even smell like smoke. Now, if you've ever been outside around just a small fire, you could stand 45 feet away from it with the wind blowing the other direction, and you're going to walk inside later, and you're going to go, I smell like smoke. I wasn't even close to the fire, and I smell like smoke. These three guys were in the furnace, and they didn't even smell like smoke. Now, that is an example of God rescuing them from danger. But what if God didn't? Is God somehow bad? Is God somehow wrong? Is God somehow less worthy of worship and praise? No. He is still the same God, infinitely worthy of far more praise than we can bring. So here we are. Israel is saying it is vain to worship God because we do not profit. Brothers and sisters, do not let your hearts be flesh-filled in thinking that God owes you something. Because God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. Anything we have is a gift strictly based upon his grace and his mercy toward us. Everything you have is a blessing from God. Your family is a blessing from God. The fact that you are alive, the very air that you breathe, 
When you think about the complicated nature of how our bodies function, just think about that for a second. You have a muscle that is pumping blood all over your body that's carrying oxygen that you're breathing in and, can, and putting it everywhere. You have all these electrical impulses that are in your brain and down your spinal cord and out into your nerves and back again. All of these things have to function just so for you to continue to be alive. Any one of those systems has just a momentary hiccup and you're gone. The fact that we live at all is by the grace of God. In him we live and move and have our being. That's not just a spiritual saying. That is a literal, physical understanding. We worship God. We follow after him. Because the profit we gain is him. The gain we get is God. That's it. That's all we need. And so sometimes we think God is withholding things from us, and he's not. Because God has already given us something that is infinitely more valuable than anything that you could possibly ever have. This morning, Pastor Mitch talked about Hannah. And in her brokenness, she desperately wanted a child. What if God never gave her one? What if God never gave her one? Her husband was wrong in what he said when he said, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? But the reason he was wrong was because what he should have said is, is not God worth more to you than 10 sons? You have God. Why do you have need of a son? Now God, in his grace, gave her a son. Praise his glorious name. But if he hadn't, that is not an example of God failing to answer a prayer. It's not what it is. It is God's grace. It's God's grace that Hannah is alive to serve him and know him at all. And we, on the other side of the New Testament, have the distinct advantage that we know God because we know Jesus Christ. We know God in a way that Israel never could. It is not vain to serve God. Verse 16, we see the God who remembers then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. For the first time in Malachi, Israel does not respond negatively to God's issue with them. All throughout the book, God says, you've done this. And Israel says, nah, and God says, here's all the ways you have. And Israel's like, I still say, nah, but here God points out to them. They're wrong. And they say, nah, and God says, yes, huh? And it says, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They spoke with one another. Rather than being critical of God, rather than complaining about their lot in life, they start to hold one another accountable to what God has said to them. You know, Jerry, when God said we were robbing him, I know what you earned when you sold that property, and I know what you gave to the temple. You know, Bob, I saw that three-legged steer you brought to the temple last week. God's telling the truth. We need to write this. They start holding each other accountable to what God is saying. Notice that it doesn't tell us what they say. It doesn't tell us the steps they took to get right with God. 
it literally just says that they spoke to one another. Remember when a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the faithlessness, the idolatry of faithlessness, how they were faithless to one another? Here, they were being faithful to one another. And what does it tell us? The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God pays attention, he hears them, and he remembers them. Now, I'm sure none of you have anybody in your lives who only remember the bad things you've done. I'm sure you have no experience with that, where there's people in your life who only remember the negative things you've done, the times you've made mistakes, and they never, they, they always just remember the positive stuff, and that's what they talk about. The negative stuff, they just forget about it, and it never comes back up, right? That's, that's all of our experience, right? No. All of us have people in our lives that seem like they are laser focused on the things we do wrong. They never notice the things we do right. I felt that in ministry as a youth pastor. Everybody remembers the time a kid knocked a hole in one of the windows in the sanctuary. They all forget about the four kids who got saved at camp. I felt that. I felt those who only remember the bad things and forget the good things. But here, God remembers, remembers their obedience. He remembers two specific things. He remembers those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that there are people who fear the Lord and esteem his name? Well, number one, we've talked about this before. Part of our obedience to God is a recognition of the fact that he is capable of snuffing us out instantaneously. There's that healthy fear. Children should have a healthy fear of their parents. Part of the problem why we have so many issues with young people today is that they do not have a healthy fear of their parents. My mother is a small woman. She's about five foot three. She's very loud but she's not real big. And as you can see, I am a large fella. So when I was about 17 and I hit a growth spurt and I was significantly larger than my mama, I thought I was big stuff. And one time my mama was upset with me and she was getting on to me. And I thought, you know what? I don't have to take this. I was actually 16 when this happened. I don't have to take this from her. I'm bigger than her. And I said, you know what, mom? Shut up. Exactly. That's what I should have thought. <laughs> now, some important things for you to remember. Number one, my mother has a bad knee. Well, she doesn't anymore. She got it replaced, but she had a bad knee. And so she would keep her shoes on the stairs in our apartment. So she wouldn't have to walk up and down the stairs to go get her shoes if she wanted to change them. So her shoes were lined up on the stairs. The other thing that's important for you to know is that my mother is left-handed. So I was expecting the right hand of fellowship. I was anticipating it. I was watching because I was ready. I was going to block it because I'm, I'm big and tough. Well, my mother being left-handed, I was watching the right hand. So she very discreetly, she never said a word. She just stared at me, looking up and just staring, just this fire in her eyes. And I just thought to myself, don't blink, Corey, don't blink. And she reaches behind her and she likes to wear these little ankle boot things. 
she reached behind her and she grabbed one of those ankle boots and she came across my face with the sole of that boot, just boom, never even saw it coming. Never saw it coming. Do you know why she did that? Because I did not have a fear of Jackie Taylor. I never told her to shut up again. At least not around the stairs, I didn't. And I'm not just, that is a real true story. She knocked the mess out of me with that shoe. I think I had a footprint on my face for a couple days, and I deserved it. I didn't have a proper fear of Jackie Taylor. Does that mean that my mother wanted me to walk around like a scared dog at the shelter, tail between my legs? No, but my mother wanted me to remember my place. When God says, fear the Lord, he wants you to remember your place. Because literally, God could snap his fingers and you would cease to exist. And not just like fade away, like everyone who's ever known you would never remember you. You would just be erased from history. God has that kind of ability. That's someone that we should fear. And then he says, those who esteemed his name. All along through Malachi, we've talked repeatedly about how Israel, the things they were doing, defamed God. They're saying, we are God's people, but then they're bringing broken sacrifices. They're robbing God at the temple. They are doing things that do not align with God's law, but they're saying we're God's people. And that shows a lie about who God is. It shows a lie about who God is. And so these are people that feared the Lord. They understood their place and they esteemed his name. They recognized that their lives were a picture of who God is that the world sees. That's what they're supposed to be doing. So God says that those in his book of remembrance, so he says he takes those who have feared him and esteemed his name, and he puts their names in a book of remembrance. Now, this is not, as we see in the New Testament, the Lamb's book of life. Those are two separate things. This is a common thing in this day and time where kings would write down deeds that were worthy of remembering by certain citizens. They'd write them down in this book of remembrance. Because every once in a while, when the king was feeling especially charitable, he would say, bring me my book of remembrance. And he'd flip through and he'd say, oh yeah, I remember that time that Jim Hammond did this. Send him 50 sheep. That's the idea behind the book of remembrance. I don't know what you're going to do with 50 sheep, but have a good time with them. New sweaters for everybody. That's just right. Luckily, you know somebody who can do that. All right. That's the idea behind the book of remembrance. And so this is God saying, I'm putting your names in the book of remembrance. And he says, this is what you get if you're in the book of remembrance. Number one, he says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. They shall be mine. Think about that for a minute. The God of all of the universe who owns literally everything, says he's going to make up a treasured possession, a treasured possession of his people. And these people in the book of remembrance are going to be in that grouping. They will be mine. They will be mine. And the fact that he he refers to himself there as the Lord of hosts there, we've talked about that before, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the heavenly armies, 
In other words, God is literally saying there, they will be mine, just you try to come and take them. They will be mine in the day when I make up my treasure possession. And then he says, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So those in his book of remembrance will be his treasured possession and shown kindness as a son. Think about the things that have been said about God by Israel throughout the course of this book. And by simply repenting, by simply fearing the Lord and esteeming his name, they have gone from being enemies of God to being his treasured possession who are valued and esteemed and kept safe like a son. When he says there, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, that is conjuring up kind of this image. So back then, if you were a man who owned a lot of property, had a lot of servants, and something went wrong and your servants kind of rebelled or things would go on, you would have to put these things down. You would have to work in your family and in your household to control these things. But you know who still got the good food off the table? You know who still got the blessings of the father? The children. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then he goes on and he says that the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be evident again. He says, then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now, the reason why that distinction will be visible again is because there actually is a distinction. See, all along, Israel throughout Malachi is saying, there's no distinction between those who serve God and those who don't. And God's saying, no, there is. Nobody serves me, though. You're all unrighteous. You're all refusing to serve me. You're all in sin. There is no distinction between righteous and unrighteous because you're all unrighteous. And so God says, because of these who have turned back to me, these who fear my name, these who, these who esteem my name, there will be a distinction between those who are righteous and those who are not. It will be evident who my people are and who my people aren't. Now, this all is pointing towards something very specific. We talked before, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. This is the last word of God before Jesus Christ comes. So when he talks about his book of remembrance, when he talks about gathering up as his treasured possession... When he talks about sparing them as a man spares his son, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the establishing of his church. Paul in Romans talks a lot about how just because you are a descendant of Israel does not mean you are actually of Israel. Just because you are outwardly circumcised in the flesh does not mean that you are God's people. There's an inward circumcision of the heart that is what is significant. That's what matters. And here we see Malachi, we see God through Malachi saying something similar. Who's in the book of remembrance? Those who fear God and esteem his name. Not those who are descended from Israel. Not those who are children of Abraham. Not those who have followed after David. But those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. So we get into chapter four. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Burning like an oven. We've already talked a little bit about an oven. 
burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Will be stubble. You remember what Israel said in verse 15? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. So here God says, look, a day is coming when all the arrogant and all the evildoers, they're going to be burned up like an oven. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Every once in a while, there's a phenomenon where a tree gets struck by lightning. And the tree catches on fire on the inside. And it burns from the inside out. And it can burn for an exceptionally long time. But you know what doesn't burn? The roots. Roots don't burn because they're under the ground. It's wet down there. It doesn't happen that way. Eventually, the trunk of the tree will burn out. It'll fall over and the fire goes out. But this fire is so hot that it will burn up the tree. It will burn up the roots. It will all be turned to ash. It will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be no visible evidence that this tree ever even existed. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Same day. Same day. Same sun. Different experiences. On the day of the Lord, you will either experience destruction or you will experience delight. And there is no middle ground. There's a stark difference in how the day of the Lord is experienced by the unrighteous versus the righteous. Because there's this imagery of the dawning of a new day, right? For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So for some, the dawning of that day is hot like an oven. And it will burn up everything. But for those of us in Christ, the dawning of that day, the sun is risen with healing in its wings. Think about that. The judgment of God for those who do not believe is terrifying. But the judgment of God for those who are in Christ, we are healed by it. Why? Because all sin and suffering is put to death. And we are made new. We are healed. It says you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. I don't know if you've ever seen calves let out of their stall. You can look up videos on YouTube. They're basically just like big dogs. And they jump around and they're all excited and they're turning in circles. It's a big deal. It's like when you get a kid who gets loose off their leash at the mall. It's party time. The day of the Lord, we will go out leaping like calves from the stall. It says, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act as the Lord of hosts. Now, we hear that, and that sounds kind of cruel, right? We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. Why would we rejoice in any way? about treading the wicked under our feet because they will be like ashes. Why would we rejoice in any way? 
Well, number one, we rejoice because the will of God has come to pass. I've, I've been asked before, when Jesus returns, will we be sad for those who we know that we love that don't know Christ? I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I don't know in those moments how our flesh and how our spirit will interact. But here's what I do know. The soul of the believer in Christ will be overjoyed at the coming of the Lord. Will be overjoyed at the final destruction of sin. Because the final destruction of sin means there is no more sorrow. There is no more suffering. There is no more pain. And so will we be sad about those who we love that are facing utter destruction? Maybe. But I believe that it will be utterly overwhelmed by the joy that we will feel. And I think the text of Malachi backs that up. This is not a joy because all of our enemies are dead. We're not dancing around singing ding dong, the witch is dead. That's not what's happening. But we are rejoicing because the will of the Lord has come to pass. The will of the Lord has come to pass. And so tonight I say to you with all of the urgency I can possibly muster, this day is coming. This day is coming. When Malachi wrote this, the Lord had in mind the dual nature of the coming of Christ. Remember, when Jesus came, the people who experienced this were very confused because they knew the coming of the Lord means the kingdom of God. And just, this, just a couple weeks ago, we started talking about Mark in youth Sunday school. And one of the things we're talking about is how the kingdom of God is not what they thought it was. The kingdom of God is one of forgiveness and repentance. But that's not all it is. See, the day of the Lord is kind of this double thing. You have the coming of Jesus that heralds in the coming destruction. And then you have the second coming of Jesus that brings it. And here's what I can tell you. At the end of the book of Malachi, when we read this, it sounds imminent. It sounds like next week the Lord is coming. It took 400 plus years before Jesus showed up. And when Jesus did show up, it was not what they expected. God does not operate on our timetable. Jesus came when God was ready. Jesus will come again when God is ready. That could be in about 10 minutes. I could say amen and Jesus could part the clouds and start coming back. That could happen. It could take another 400 years. It could take another 4,000 years. We don't know. But one thing is for certain. If you delay thinking, well, there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow when I can repent of my sin and turn to faith in Christ. You don't know that. Because when the day of the Lord comes, it's too late. It's too late. When he starts to come, it's over. And whatever side you're on, that's where you are. So you have chances 
but your chances are limited. They're limited by the fact that we don't know when he's coming. They're limited by the fact that we don't have any inkling of when it's going to be. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and follow God's word. Repent and submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. Because your time is short. I know most of you here, I know most of you here would tell me you're a Christian. Most of you here would tell me you've been a Christian for years. And it's not that I don't believe you. It's not that I think you're lying. It's not that I see things in your life that make me doubt your salvation. But it's that I believe that the scripture calls me as a preacher to preach to you as though you are lost. Because you might be. And you may not even know it. And it might be this text that the Holy Spirit uses to prick your heart and say, you are due for destruction. I don't know. And so I will continue to preach to you in that way. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. That's why I preach this way. So my encouragement to you tonight is if you do not know Christ, come and talk to me. I will be glad to sit down with you and show you from Scripture what sin is and why you need salvation so that you don't have to face destruction. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, and I think that's really significant because it's an action of God. It's an action of God. When God decides he's going to act, he's going to act, and that's all there is to it. And so we see, we've seen the underlying problem through the book of Malachi. We've seen the God who remembers. We've seen the, the differentiation between destruction or delight. And then the book ends with two closing reminders, verses four through six. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. The first thing that God wants them to remember is to follow God's law. Read his word, follow it. This is in a moral sense, not in a salvation sense. Okay? You cannot pick up the Bible and follow all the commands and be saved. You can't do that. You only can be saved by the work of Christ. That's it. But as Christians, we are called to live our lives according to God's law. That's the difference between legalism and being a follower of Christ. Legalism thinks I must do this to be saved. Being a follower of Christ says I do this because I love Jesus. Remember what we talked about? Following God is vain. What does it profit us to follow his statutes? It profits us that we get to be more like Jesus Christ. That's what it profits us. That's the first reminder. The second reminder is this. There will be reminders of his coming, warnings of his coming. Verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and, their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, this is where I told you before about how this is about the first and second coming of Jesus, right? So here we very clearly see a mention of Elijah the prophet. We talked about this before. Who is the quote-unquote, second coming of Elijah the prophet. It's John the Baptist. So for the first coming of Jesus, they received a warning 
from John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the warning for the first coming. Well, what about the second coming? Is a herald going to show up and start proclaiming? Yeah, but not in the way you think. Hi. It's me. It's the Bible. It's preachers in churches all over the world. This is my responsibility. I am the warning of the coming of the kingdom of God. God's word is the warning of the coming of the kingdom of God. See, when John the Baptist came, what was he doing? He was saying, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. It's right here. Thus says the Lord. Your warning, day after day, week after week, that Jesus is coming again, is your Bible. When you read it, that's your warning. When it's preached, that's your warning. When you sit in Sunday school class, when you read a devotional magazine, when somebody randomly texts you a, a, a scripture passage, that's your warning. When the Holy Spirit brings to mind some verse that you have remembered from long ago, that's your warning. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Fear the Lord. Esteem his name. And how do we do that? We place our faith in Christ because it is only by, uh, by placing our faith in Christ that we understand our place and that we lift high his name. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what that means. That when we are in Christ, we are the evidence of God's righteousness. God esteems his name through our salvation. And we esteem God's name by living worthy of that salvation. Let's pray. Father, we... We pray that you would convict our hearts. We pray that you would show us our sin and that you would guide us toward righteousness. I pray, Father, for anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that you would break their hearts tonight. That by your Spirit, you would show them their desperate need for salvation. Because the day is coming soon. Whether it is the day of death or the day of the return of Jesus, it is coming soon. And it'll be too late, Father. I pray that we will be people who look forward to the second coming of Jesus with delight and joy and not terror. That we would not face destruction. Father, be glorified in us. Help us to fear your name, to esteem your name, all the days of our lives. Be with us as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen.